welcome to the IOD's Director's Briefing Podcast. This podcast is produced by the IOD's Policy Unit and provides timely updates, insights and commentary on the key issues of the day impacting business leaders. Seamus Gillen, welcome to the IOD. Um, I'm really delighted to see you and congratulations on the publication of your new book, Building Better Boards, How to Lead and Succeed in a Changing World. Um, Seamus, you're you're an old friend of the IOD, aren't you? You you at one stage were an IOD tutor, but we first met when you were Director of Policy at what was then the Institute of Chartered Secretaries and Administrators. But but I know since then you've been active all around the world advising boards on governance and, and other issues. Um, but as a, once again, very many congratulations on the book. Oh, Roger, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. And it's great to catch up with you. Um, I'm a great fan and supporter of the Institute of Directors. Uh, and as you say, we've worked closely together in the past. You're right that I was the uh, policy director of what is now called the Chartered Governance Institute um, and my career previously involved working at uh, senior levels in Whitehall. I worked inside two corporates in the the water sector and uh, the mobile telephone sector and then for the last 16 years um, I've been working with directors as you say all over the world um, training them doing work around board evaluation and so on. And I'm particularly interested in the issues of director effectiveness and board effectiveness. And I was able to write the uh, regulatory guidance in the UK, um, the the Financial Reporting Council's guidance on board effectiveness. And that's where this uh, book started. Yes, and I remember that publication, and I think it's been a very useful complement to the UK Corporate Governance Code. But I have to say, I found your book extremely readable. Um, There's also a good deal of historical context in there, which I think is very interesting, and also many case studies. Um, So I think um, IOD members will find it a very interesting and relevant read. Um, But maybe I could just start by asking you, why did you decide to write this book? Uh, that's a great question. It's a question everyone asks me. Um, it was because um, for the past 10 years in particular, I found myself accidentally actually traveling around the world, uh, working in uh, Southeast Asia, South Africa, um, Hong Kong, a lot of work in the Gulf and so on. Um, apart from the work that I was doing, most of the work I was doing was actually here in the UK. And I began to realize that um, when I counted it up, that I'd worked with directors from or I had visited up to 50 countries in the world. And I'd seen governance from so many different perspectives in so many jurisdictions. And from that, I learned two big things, Roger. And that's that's, that's what got me on the path of beginning to write the book. The first thing I realized, and I say this, and it's it's often considered quite heretical when I work with directors, and I say that I don't think there's any such thing as governance best practice, because every single business model is unique. And to apply, for example, the principles which are in the UK approach to a bank in Mauritius 
or, or, or to oil and gas in another part of the world. It just doesn't work. Um, and so what I believe strongly is that we take what is good practice out there, and there is plenty of evidence of good practice, and we make it best inside our own business model. So I think best practice operates inside an organization's own business model, but that we shouldn't talk about it as a general philosophy um, for all jurisdictions in the world. So that's one thing I've, I learned, and that's one thing that got me going on writing the book. The other thing I learned, and this came from writing, first of all, the Financial Reporting Council's Guidance on Board Effectiveness, which was published after the, the global financial crisis in 2007-2008, was that it is possible to see what is going wrong inside an organization. It is possible to identify dysfunction. It is possible to identify red flags. And therefore, if one um, writes about those red flags and, and, and spreads that knowledge around, it allows governance professionals to reflect on their own organizations and think, uh, do we have a problem here? Is there something here which has to be nipped in the bud? Because intuitively, a governance professional will think, yes, there's something up and I need to look into this. So the book started from those two principles, that there is no such thing as best practice, but we can incorporate it into our business model as best. Um, And also that we can see what a failing organization looks like and we can begin to identify those red flags and start to address them. Well, Seamus, those are two very interesting points. I wonder if I could kind of probe them um, a, a bit further. I mean, it you're absolutely right that there is great diversity in the way in which corporate governance is applied around the world. And we see, in particular, the board of directors operates somewhat differently in different countries. There are different structures. There's the classics of two-tier board structure in Germany versus our own single-tier system and, and many other other differences. But wouldn't you agree, though, that there are some, as it were, common principles of good governance, such as accountability, transparency, um, integrity, which really need to be present in, in all governance systems, um, you know, wherever they're applied? Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And the book is trying to explore some of those eternal principles, as I would, as, as I would put it, Um to, to emphasise that point that there are many common features. And more practically, Roger, um, I think you can actually identify practices within governance which are so good, they're best. For example, the separation of the role of the chair from the CEO, which is not a model which is particularly uh, advocated in the US, but around the world it is so good, it's best. Having independence in the boardroom is so good, it's best. Um, Having independent external evaluations of a board to kick the tires is again, so good, it's best. And and interestingly, so many of those innovations did actually come out of the the UK. And and the, the, the Cadbury Code back in 1992, and of course this is the 30th anniversary year of the creation of code, uh, which has gone all around the world, it, it does point to the fact that there are eternal principles that we do need to to hold on to. Yes. And on your second point, Seamus, that, that there are red flags, governance red flags, which one can identify and that will give you a kind of advance warning of, of, of underlying um, malaise. 
I just wonder, though, how easy is it to spot these red flags from outside an organisation? I mean, there are all sorts of groups that are trying to assess corporate governance, like proxy advisors, for example, who are trying to measure um, corporate governance at, at companies. And some years ago, the IOD tried to create a good governance index with various measurable um, proxies for, for good governance, which was had mi- mixed success, I would say. Is it possible if you're not inside the boardroom to spot these signs of bad governance? Yeah, I, I think it is, Roger. But uh, first of all, let's accept the Let's accept the limits. Uh, if, if one is outside the organisation, it is difficult to know what's going on inside. And that's the importance of the role of the governance professional inside the organisation. And, of course, it's not just the governance professional. There's a governance community inside an organisation which knows actually what is happening. Um, so maybe we, we start with them and say, uh, read the book uh, and understand what kind of issues are going on inside your organisation that you may need to tackle. But for people outside the organisation, we know that um, they struggle to find out. They struggle to find the window into the boardroom. And that's why often uh, an organisation's disclosure of the outcome of an independent external board evaluation is often scrutinised pretty rigorously by stakeholders, uh, investors, and so on, to try and understand what's going on. But here's something, Roger. Um, All boards fail for the same reasons. Now, that is an absolutely stunning thing to say. Uh, And it's something I learned from the work that I did, that all boards fail for exactly the same reasons. From one company to another, it would be different reasons. Um, and, and we can also say that all boards succeed for the same different reasons. So we know what good looks like and we know what bad looks like. So, for example, if we get a qualified audit report, if the, if the accounts are, are filed late, if there isn't independence of, the, of certain control functions inside the organisation, those are the kinds of warning signs that tell us that the governance inside that organisation is not as strong as it should be. Um, and, and, and in the book, I go through all the various things that one can look at to identify what might be a sign of weakness, what might be a sign of dysfunction, and therefore why should stakeholders, uh, why should uh, investors and those who put money into an organisation begin to ask questions more rigorously and more robustly. And if they don't like the answers, to get out. Uh, because if, if they can't be convinced that the, the organisation is taking governance seriously, then that for me is almost the biggest red flag of all. Yes. Um, what do you think ultimately are the, the, the causes of, of poor governance? I mean, is it does it ultimately start and end with the board itself, the dynamics around the boardroom table? Um does, is it caused by imbalances of power within the boardroom or a lack of, of know-how and competence or a lack of diversity? What, what in your experience, have been the, been the main sources of poor governance? Oh, look, thank you. Fantastic question. So let me, let me um, paint a slightly black and white picture, which I think really does exist out there. And that's the organisation's approach to governance. So either an organisation will see governance uh, as a compliance a cost, uh, an overhead, uh, a back office activity, an area of subject matter expertise, something which has to be done to satisfy regulation and code. So the boxes get ticked. 
Um, directors, senior management perceive, derive little value from the exercise, and then they move on. The alternative uh, perspective, and I have worked with boards like this, are those who see governance as a commercial discipline, um, a fundamental underpin to the process of value creation, value protection, and value preservation. Um, and in that kind of world, high governance standards create competitive advantage. And that, Roger, is a concept as applicable to not-for-profits and public sector bodies as to commercial entities. Um, so high-performing boards, from a governance perspective, view it and embrace it as a, as a critical business enabler. Um, and they adopt governance as a mindset, a way of life, uh, in, in effect, a liberating philosophy, a source of transformation. Now, that may sound highfalutin, but I have worked with boards which are absolutely non-performing. And I have worked with boards which are at the top of their game and taking high-quality strategic decisions which are leading to operational outperformance. And the difference between them is their attitude to governance between the organisation who sees it as compliance and the organisation which sees it as a source of competitive advantage. Yes. Now, you have a very interesting couple of chapters in your book, one on the purpose of an organisation and the other on the purpose of a board. Now, they seem like very fundamental questions um, for, for us all to ask. I mean, I wonder what the main insights are from, from those two chapters. Okay, so, Roger, when I start working with a board or a group of directors, and they may be directors from the same organisation, or they could be, you know, one of these kind of group training things where people have signed up from different organisations. And I will say to them, what's the purpose of an organisation? And they look absolutely, you know, stunned. What kind of question is that? And I say it's the most important question uh, in governance. Therefore, the answer is the most important answer in governance. And by this time, they are slightly getting nervous. And after we work our way through it, we, we, we come to the answer that the, the purpose of an organization is to create value. And how one defines value is determined by the business model, whether it's a primary school, a hospital, an airline, a not-for-profit, a, a parastate or public sector body or whatever. Um, and then we move on in a discussion. And then I say to them, so you are directors on a board. What's the purpose of the board? And if we want to know if you have been effective as a director and if the board has been effective, and if you come out of a four-hour meeting, how would you judge whether you have actually made a contribution? How would you judge your effectiveness? And the very beginning of that conversation is to to understand what's the purpose of the board. And we can spend half a day on this. And of course, the purpose of a board in my world is to take decisions. And if the board isn't taking decisions, the organization isn't moving on. The same for us in personal life. If we don't take decisions, we don't get out of bed in the morning. Um, and it's taking high quality strategic decisions, which are creating value for the organization and guaranteeing a short-term survival. And we've seen that challenge over the past two and a half years of the virus and its long-term sustainable success. And if the board isn't capable of doing that, then that is the beginning of governance dysfunction. Yes. So, so the purpose of the organization is to grow value and protect it and preserve it. And the purpose of the board is to take decisions which allow it 
to 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 grow that value and protect that value and see the organization uh, create its long-term sustainable future. And one thing I'd say here, Roger, when, when I ask directors where do they live and they look at me and think I've got two heads or three heads, and I say, you live in two really important places. Can you tell me where you live? And after another 10, 15 minutes of head scratching, I, we talk about the fact that the two important places to live are the present and the future. They are the only two places that matter. The past is gone. We live in the present and we live in the future. And yet when I look at the minutes of a board meeting over the course of a year, when I observe a board meeting, they are living in the past. They spend most of their time looking in the rear view mirror at operational outcomes, when actually their job is to create a successful future for their organization. And if they're not doing it, there's nobody else in the organization doing it. And these are the kind of discussions that we begin to have when we say, why are you here? What is your purpose? And why is the board here? And what is it going to spend four hours doing? And it begins to give them some hooks and some handles on which to hang an assessment. Or have we been any good at our job? Are we good directors individually and collectively? Are we an effective board? Yes. And that takes us to the final chapter of your book, which is actually entitled, How Do We Measure a Board's Effectiveness? Which is presumably um, in relation to um, the organisation's purpose and the board's purpose, as you've described. But do you do you think that board evaluations are nowadays an important component of good governance? Roger, I would say this. I would say that uh, an independent external board evaluation, well, let's start at the beginning. All boards should evaluate themselves every year um, and their performance. But that becomes quite difficult if it's conducted internally. It can be quite a political exercise. It can be compromised. It can be a case of um, directors marking their own homework. So the, the good practice, which was introduced by the UK Code of Independent External uh, Assurance of a Board's Performance, is I would say, Roger, the single biggest innovation in code in 30 years. It is the single best thing that a board can do to have somebody come along and say, are we actually as good as we think we are? Or we don't think we are performing correctly. Can you help identify what the problem is? Um, and and so I, that's the point I would make. It It is a very difficult intervention to make. It's a very sensitive intervention to make, but it is the most important project any board will undertake. Um, and, and so, yeah, I and I've seen the results and a good board will accept the results and will implement the changes necessary to move on and move to the next, uh, to the next level of its performance. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a transformational innovation in the world of governance and code. Yes. Now, I mean, boards nowadays are facing a lot of challenges. Um, things are really moving rapidly. I mean, not least due to the pandemic, but also due to the challenge of facing up to climate change and how do we decarbonize our, our business models. Um, and also really thinking about the company's resilience in the face of a lot of um, economic problems, shortages, inflation, um, high energy prices and so on. I mean, how well do you think that, that boards are equipped 
to face up to these challenges. Do you do you see generally as you go around the world, as you as you look at UK companies in particular, um, effective boards ready to meet these challenges? I, I so Roger again, thank you. Fantastic question. I don't think boards have the right discussions. Actually, uh, that's a generalisation I know, but if I uh, if somebody reads the book. They will, they will understand what I'm saying, which is that governance is all about how the organization positions itself in the market and with its stakeholders. And these challenges that you're talking about, ESG, climate change, Black Lives Matter, hashtag me too, all of these, all of these societal, economic and environmental changes have to be understood by the board. And the board has to reposition the company accordingly. Now, my view is, Roger, that boards don't have those discussions. They don't have those discussions enough. And in fact, they spend too much time on, kind of, as I say, retrospective operational outcomes, rather than, well, how are we going to cope with the next uh, systemic risk that's going to crystallize? And Mervyn King, the great Mervyn King from South Africa, who has endorsed the book, and I've got a quote from him, on the front cover, of which I'm very proud. He says that there are two systemic risks that we're facing. The first is climate change, and the second is cyber. Now, we can add others onto that, like tech, and so on, but tech and cyber maybe go together. But these are the systemic risks which are coming our way, we, and we can see them. Uh, and there's no point in pretending they're not there. There's no point in um, enduring business failure because that grey rhino came trampling towards us and we did nothing about it, as happened with the virus. So the key thing, uh, Roger, I would say, is that boards should be repositioning the discussions they're having inside the boardroom. They're only meeting four hours a month, or they might have committee meetings. Some boards meet four times a year. Some boards meet six times a year. That's not enough for the way and the speed with which the world is changing. Um, and I work with boards to help them change the nature of the conversation they're having in order to address the fact that these systemic risks are facing them and they're coming and they need to reposition. And if they don't reposition, they will fail. And the tool that will help them think those things through is called governance. Yes. And do you think that things like director education, continuing professional development and, and qualifications, indeed, like the IOD's Charter director qualifications. Do you think they have a place in, in all of this? Absolutely. They really do. So, Roger, I, I, I say to do, a, a director, is today the same as yesterday? And they normally say pretty quickly no. Um, is tomorrow the same as today? They'll say it's unlikely to be the same. So the world is changing every day. And we need to equip directors to understand that, first of all, and then to, to get the education and to get the learning and the development that they need to cope with that, that changing world. And we know as a result of the pandemic that the change is now reaching exponential levels. Um, and therefore, continuing professional development, um, coaching and mentoring, proper qualifications are absolutely vital for equipping directors to have the confidence and grow the perspective and grow the knowledge uh, in order to, to deal with that changing world. So it's not a case of we can just get by and we can wing it, but we need those qualifications. We need organizations like the IOD continuing to offer that training 
so so that directors can actually reach the top of their game because they need to be because we're in a race now to survive and uh, those organizations which can't perform will fail well um Seamus, thank you so much for this discussion. Um, Your book, Building Better Boards, How to Lead and Succeed in a Changing World, is published by Bloomsbury, and I understand that it's um, due for publication on the 7th of July, um, 2022. But those of you who wish to um, purchase a copy can do so, I think, on Amazon already. Um, Thank you for the book. I think it's a really good read, and um, I wish you all the best in talking more about it. Thank you very much, Roger, and thank you for your support. Much appreciated. We hope that you have enjoyed this Director's Briefing podcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to ensure that you are kept up to date on our future podcasts. You can find more information about our work on our website at iod.com forward slash news and on our LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. You can also contact us directly via policy-unit at iod.com.